You're listening to Future X, brought to you by Future Design School. Have you washed your hands today? Have you recently been in a restroom and watched someone walk out without washing their hands? How do you react when someone next to you begins coughing or sneezing? We all notice these things and react to them, but few of us think about it like today's guest, on a microbiological or even genetic level. While most of us only briefly think about the germs, disease, and viruses we can't see, today's guest is constantly working and thinking about ways to prevent the spread of disease and containing outbreaks. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you... Our future. Our future. Our future. Our future. <laughs> yes! really fascinating. I'm optimistic. I'm like, oh my God. That's a very, very real possibility. That's my vision for the future. I'm Dr. Jennifer Gardy. I'm a senior scientist at the British Columbia Center for Disease Control and an associate professor in UBC's School of Population and Public Health, where I hold a Canada Research Chair in Public Health Genomics. Welcome to FutureX. I'm Quinn Henderson, and that is Dr. Jennifer Gardy. However, that was her role at the time of this interview. She just recently announced that she has joined the Gates Foundation as the Deputy Director of Surveillance, Data, and Epidemiology. As you're about to hear, the study of disease and the spread of disease has drastically changed. And Dr. Gardy and other scientists have much more than laboratories and butterfly nets to take on disease in the future. What lured you into this profession? Where does your love for all of this come from? I probably have the worst career origin story of all time. I saw the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman when I was a teenager, and I said, that's what I want to do. I would not recommend basing one's career choice on watching Dustin Hoffman movies. There's maybe a couple good options in there, Outbreak being maybe perhaps the only one of them. Um, But yeah, probably one of the only people that was inspired to uh, pursue a career in public health by watching Dustin Hoffman chase a monkey around the jungle with a butterfly net. (laughs) But it got me interested in public health and infectious diseases and outbreaks and understanding how do new infectious diseases appear in a population? How do they spill over from animal populations into human populations? Once they get into human populations, how do they spread from person to person? And most importantly, what can we do to stop those outbreaks? And I learned over the years, the answer is not chasing monkeys around in a jungle with a butterfly butterfly net, really. Um, But yeah, we've developed some innovative tools to let me do what Dustin Hoffman was doing just in a slightly more high-tech way. Yeah, I actually think back to that movie. I remember seeing that and I had a totally different reaction than you did. It scared the hell out of me. (laughs) You know what? I watched it later. It was funny because this was such an influential movie for me as a young person. I guess I was about 16 when I saw it. And then I didn't watch it again for the longest time. And I found myself, oh, maybe seven or eight years ago, on a flight to win 
Winnipeg, Manitoba to go visit Canada's National Microbiology Lab. And this is home to Canada's only biosafety level four lab, like the type of place where you can work on Ebola virus and other like super deadly pathogens. And you see in level four lab in, in Outbreak the movie. Anyway, I'm on this flight heading to Winnipeg. I'm checking out the seat back TV for movies and they're showing Outbreak. I'm like, oh, this is the perfect time to watch this film. Like, let's bring it on back to where it started. I watched it and I couldn't believe what a terrible film it was. It's really quite bad. Well, there's one thing you said, too, is you're kind of describing how you, you came to be doing what you're doing um, that kind of stood out to me. You have what happened in the movie. It's probably nothing like what you do now or what you expected. I certainly have not got to ride around in a helicopter um, armed with warheads uh, about to uh, fight off a government plane that's about to bomb a small town to eradicate a disease out of existence. Well, not yet. Yeah, not yet. My day seems to be mostly meetings and occasionally meetings about meetings. Um, but, you know, where where Outbreak went wrong is it really sort of sensationalized um, what the response to a disease outbreak looks like. And there've been other movies since then. I'm thinking particularly of Contagion, uh, which did a really fantastic job of kind of showing the reality of things. So Outbreak was off the mark in terms of how it presented how an outbreak response would really unfold. Um, but because it was, you know, 1995, 1996, that came out nearly 20, well, yeah, more than 20 years ago now. It really um, didn't have any sense for where the field of uh, sort of disease detection and disease outbreak investigation was going. Um, so the tools that I use are very, very different from what people were doing in the mid-90s for outbreak investigation. So you see Dustin Hoffman doing very traditional lab analyses, you know, working hands-on with this virus that's causing this hemorrhagic fever. And I rarely set foot in a lab. All of my work is computational. All of it is driven by data and not actually putting on a biohazard suit, heading into a lab and working directly with pathogens. So uh, yeah, my work is quite, quite different from the, uh, the Hollywood version. One of the things I want to bring up as well is you're a scientist, but you've also been on a very popular TV show explaining the nature of things to your audiences. Why, why do you feel that doing both of those is important? Oh, yeah, I, I am both a scientist and a science communicator. And it actually, it kind of started unintentionally. Um, when I was an undergrad um, at UBC, I was doing a science degree. I was studying cell biology and genetics and a bit of microbiology. But for fun, I was working at the campus newspapers um, just because they, they were interesting. They're, every couple of weeks, this very cool paper would come out that seemed to be written by very funny, interesting people. And early on as an undergrad, I was like, I want to hang out with these sort of People. They're doing fun, interesting stuff. So I was sort of pursuing journalism as not even a side hustle at that point. It was just something fun to do. It was a fun extracurricular activity. But as I started to go through my science career, I kept up with some of the journalism stuff on the side. I worked for the Montreal Gazette for years, and through there, I got linked up with uh, doing some freelance um, science writing, some copy editing, some fact-checking for some major magazines and larger newspapers. And as I was, I was doing those things on the side, the journalism was sort of something to pay the bills while I was going through grad school. But then uh, I started to see, maybe about 
15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, I started to see how the two really fit together in an interesting way. Um, so as I started to move into science television, it became clear to me that you know being a scientist gave me a really good footing to go in and do science television. Um, you're out there in the field, talking to scientists, asking them questions about their work. So if you've got that sort of scientifically oriented mind, one that's really able to um, sort of be curious, seek out information, synthesize that information, ask more questions, it just sets you up for sort of being a good on-camera personality. You've got that sort of curiosity and enthusiasm that comes with being a scientist. But then what I was really surprised to see was how my work in the communications space, whether it was writing, whether it was the science television work, really started to feed back and improve my scientific life. Um, you saw this beautiful collision of these two disciplines where the writing that I was doing, um, the hosting and the presentation that I was doing were directly feeding back into when I was writing a journal article, for example, working in newspapers gave me a sense of how narrative works and how to draw readers in with story and how to lead them on a very clear arc where one bit of information leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. That's also really applicable when you are writing grants and trying to get funding for research projects. You need to convince your reviewers that what you're doing is incredibly cool and very feasible and highly fundable. And having those writing skills, having those storytelling skills was really important. Same thing, bringing some of the pieces in from that on-camera uh, presentation work helps you to become an amazing speaker. You get up there on stage, you know how to tell a story about the science that you're going to be talking about, but then you bring this energy as well, and you've got a real sense for how visuals can really complement what you're speaking on. So you always know, spend a lot of time on your slide decks so and making really sort of compelling, interesting visuals. So it was really uh, surprising and rewarding for me to see how that investment in communications activities was having these tangible returns in my professional life. And that's something that I've evangelized about to my colleagues for years now, just saying, even if you don't want to be a professional science journalist, even if you don't want to be out there on science television, invest some effort in improving your science communication skills because you will benefit enormously in your scientific professional life. It's tremendous what happens when you kind of go outside your comfort zone and pull a little bit of that creativity and that communication and that storytelling into what is normally a fairly technical and dry field. Well, I think that's very fascinating that you kind of found this intersection between the science and the communication, and that really helps to tell the story. And I think that could be very valuable in what you do really in the center of disease control communicating to the public and being able to tell that story in a way that's really going to maybe encourage the public to take a different course of action. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think communication is one of the most important, but one of the most overlooked interventions that we can use in public health. We're always trying to think of, you know, how can we stop this outbreak? How can we get a hold on a spread of a pathogen? And we tend to focus a lot of our efforts on very traditional approaches. You know, let's get therapeutics out there, drugs and vaccines out into the community. Um, let's get people doing things like basic hygiene. But we can often forget um, just how powerful good communications can be in changing behaviors, in getting people to adopt some sort of precaution. 
I actually teach a graduate course in risk communication here at the University of British Columbia, and it's about risk communication and public health. And we talk about the many ways that understanding um, an audience's needs um, and their knowledge, knowledge, attitudes, practices, beliefs, how that is the one of the most important steps in coming up with any sort of health communication or health information campaign is understanding what your public needs, what they think, what they believe is really key to saying, okay, what information do I have to get out there in order to affect the change I want? You know, if I want more people to be going out and getting a flu shot, I need to understand what people's perceptions of the flu shot are. Why are some people getting it? Why are some people not getting it? And then, you know, what's the most most powerful message to reach the people that aren't getting it. And so often we're finding it's things like storytelling. We often talk in science communication about uh, the knowledge deficit model. And this is what I think a lot of scientists sort of believe in, that if um, you want people to do something, you just give them some facts and they'll be able to arrive at the correct conclusion and do the action that you're hoping that they do on their own. But time and time again, research in the communication sphere has shown that that is not the case. The knowledge deficit model doesn't work. We have to use other techniques, other strategies to uh, convince, to impel people to do something. And storytelling is one of those. So I personally have a real interest in in the public health landscape, what role does communication play? Um, it's interesting to think about here um, in places like Canada and places like the United States and Western Europe, where we have very well-resourced public health systems. But I think it's even more exciting to think about how can communication and inter information be used as an intervention in settings that are a little more challenging? Thinking about the Ebola outbreak in West Africa a few years ago, um, the Ebola outbreaks that have been going on in the DRC over the last uh, year or so. These are situations where you may not have a massive arsenal of uh, vaccine, for example, or even public health workers uh, to go out there in the field, but communication is a tool that thanks to digital platforms, we can reach everybody with information. So thinking about how that can be used as a disease prevention strategy is really, really exciting. Well, I think that's very fascinating how much empathy kind of drives how you communicate everything. And I'm thinking even back to the outbreak situation, um, the movie, not any current specific outbreak, but really that seemed more like a, a passive approach. And the way things have evolved technology-wise, that now you're able to take more of an active approach through communication. So let's transition into the technology that you have to kind of support what you do. And one of those big things would probably be genome sequencing. So really, what is it and why is that important? Sure. So genome sequencing, uh, a genome is quite simply the complete set of genetic instructions that encodes a living thing. Any living thing on earth, whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's the tree that I can see outside my office window, whether it's a fish in the sea or a bird in the sky, or a bacterium infecting somebody, they all have a genome. And this genetic instruction book is written in four little letters, A, C, G, and T, representing the 
the bases that make up DNA. Um, and it encodes all of the instructions for that living thing. So when we talk about genome sequencing, we are simply reading the complete instruction book written in that four-letter alphabet for a particular uh, organism. So in my case, I'm interested in pathogen genome sequencing. I want to sequence the genomes of the bacteria, of the viruses, of the fungi, of the parasites that are causing outbreaks in human populations. Other people are doing it in animal and plant populations. I focus on human work. But it turns out that there's a lot of really important information encoded in the genome that can tell us a lot. We've known for as long as we've had genome sequencing that it's a really powerful tool for helping us to understand the biology of a particular organism. So if you're seeing a virus for the first time, a brand new, uh, previously unknown virus, looking at its genome, um, predicting the types of proteins that encodes, um, the types of functions that those proteins might have, you can kind of get a sense of who this pathogen is, and what can it do, and what makes it tick. But the information that I'm particularly interested in, um, and that I think is being used by researchers around the world now as part of outbreak response, isn't so much around understanding the pathogen itself and what makes it dangerous. We're really interested in understanding how does that pathogen spread from person to person? How did it get in to a human population, and once it got in, how did it move from person to person? Or in the case of, say, a foodborne outbreak of disease, how did it move from a food product into a restaurant, into a food item, into people? And it turns out that by reading the whole genome, there are tiny little kind of single letter clues almost that can help us track how that pathogen is moving through the population. So we're basically using um, the genome sequence of the pathogen as a, kind of a tool to tell us what was the exact path that this germ took through our population. Where did it start? How did it move from person to person? And once we've got a sense of how that's happening and why that's happening, that can tell us a little bit about how we really need to respond to that particular outbreak. And it's something that's only become possible in the last uh, 10 years or so. We've had genome sequencing technologies since the 70s, but like any technology that's been around for a while, there have been these big you know, paradigm shifts in exactly how that technology works. I mean, you think of the way we watch movies now versus the way I would have watched Outbreak, um, you know, probably rented a VHS cassette from the Blockbuster video store and brought it home. And then later on, um, there was the period of DVDs, there was that weird laser disc era in between those two. And then after DVDs, we started to get into the streaming model, you know, getting things off of iTunes, and now things like Netflix. And so the way we've watched movies, the techno uh, technology has fundamentally changed. And the same things really happened with genome sequencing, the technology has changed so much and so quickly, it was almost as if we went, you know, right from VHS to Netflix streaming. So just in the last few years, we've been able to sequence at a throughput, we've been able to sequence enough pathogens in an outbreak situation for a reasonable enough cost that this has now become a, a tool that we can include in our outbreak response arsenal. So how long does it take 
to, to do the sequencing, I would imagine that's probably one of the big advances is just the overall time. I mean, what is it down to now and where is it going? Absolutely. Um, it's been incredible. So when the very first bacterial genome was sequenced, it was 1995, around the same time as Outbreak came out. And uh, that genome uh, was Haemophilus influenzae, and it took uh, around 13 months for the team to do the sequencing and do the computational analysis to kind of reassemble the sequencing data and, and build it into a complete genome. And it cost millions of dollars. When I started uh, developing this technique of um, reading pathogen genome sequences to figure out who transmitted to whom, we were really excited because we were able to sequence 36 whole genomes in a single experiment. The sequencing took uh, about a week, uh, and it took another week or so to assemble the data, and uh, the cost had gone down dramatically. But now, just nine years after we started that project, we're in a much different place. Sequencing technology has changed again, and one of the DNA sequencers that we use most frequently is teeny, teeny, tiny. It's smaller than a stapler that you might have on your desk. It's got a USB uh, power cord. That means you can just plug it into a laptop and run it off of there, and it's highly portable. You can take it anywhere in the world. Previous DNA sequencers were big, bulky things that had to sit in very specialized laboratories, um, and now now, that sequencer is really interesting because where previous sequencers have read all the little bits of DNA, kind of stored them in their memory, and they only give you the data once the whole analysis is done, and that's usually a minimum of sort of 8 to 12 hours of sequencing, this little tiny um, portable sequencer gives you the data as it's reading the sequence um, on the sequencer. So you can plug your sequencer into your laptop, open up the software that runs the sequencer, and you can watch your DNA come in in real time. So if you were trying to sequence the Ebola virus genome, for example, this tiny sequencer is being used extremely successfully in quite a few of the recent Ebola outbreaks. And within about five minutes, you've got the complete genome sequence, and it's there and analyzed and ready for you. Um, and you did it all on your desktop or all on your laptop and possibly, you know, out there in a field laboratory deep in the jungle. It's incredible how much it's changed. Oh, that just kind of blows my mind right there to be able to see it come in real time. It's kind of mind-boggling. I don't have words for that and understanding how that actually works. Yeah, um, it's really neat. Um, well, if you want the little quick ones over the technology, it's a technology called nanopore sequencing. And nanopore is exactly what it sounds like. It's a tiny hole. So imagine um, a, a chip with all of these tiny, tiny, tiny holes. And each hole has an electrical current that is uh, spanning that and DNA is a charged molecule, and it's made up of these four letters, the four bases, A, C, G, and T, and each one of those carries a slightly different charge. So imagine you've got DNA um, like a wet noodle that you sort of coiled up. Imagine then sort of... Um, untangling that noodle. So you're just holding sort of a floppy piece of spaghetti and you're slowly lowering it through a little hole. Maybe you're passing that little floppy piece of spaghetti through a Cheerio and there's a little electric current across the whole of the Cheerio. So as you pull that piece of DNA through, each base is going to go through one, one base at a time. You're going to have the, you know, A coming through, then a C coming through, and then a T, and then maybe another T, and then a G, whatever the, the order of the um, genome or whatever 
whatever the genome sequence is. It's going to be pulled through one at a time. So each of those bases is going to disrupt that little electrical current to a different degree. And the little chip that holds all of those tiny holes is able to read that change. And it's able to say, oh, the current was just disrupted by this much. That means an A base just passed through the hole. Oop, and then next I saw a disruption that looks like it um, is associated with a C. So I'm going to infer that there was a C next. So just by the uh, presence of these uh, electrical current disruptions, you're reading one letter at a time, the DNA sequence. It is absolutely amazing technology. And you can be analyzing it in real time as well. So just as quickly as that information is coming in, you can be comparing those sequences, those um, long strings of those four letters against databases to say, oh, what species does this come from? So there's been some really interesting work where people have come in with a mystery illness. Um, they're obviously sick with an infectious disease. We just can't tell what that disease is. But with this tiny sequence we can take a sample of you know, their blood or maybe their spinal fluid if they've got a meningitis sort of infection. Um, we take a sample. We try and extract all of the DNA that might be in that sample. We put that DNA onto our tiny sequencer and we read it. And as we're reading it, we're comparing each piece of DNA that we see against a database. And sure, we're going to see a lot of human DNA that's just kind of along for the ride. Um, but at some point, we're going to see something that maps back to a pathogen. You're going to see something that maps back to Ebola virus or Lassa virus or yellow fever or something exciting. And you're going to say, bingo, that's it. This person that had a previously unknown, undiagnosed disease, all of a sudden, within and, you know, minutes, maybe hours, we've been able to diagnose them um, just from a blood sample, just from reading the information that's there. So along, along with sequencing, what other technologies are out there that would even go along with that to help, help really further understand the spread of viruses? Is there something else that excites you about being able to contain or track outbreaks? Yeah, you know, one of my favorite technologies is this sort of emerging field of research called digital epidemiology. And epidemiology is the study of uh, the incidence of disease in a population. And so an epidemiologist studying infectious diseases um, is looking at um, how frequently do these diseases occur, where are they happening, et cetera, et cetera. And the tools that we've traditionally used for epidemiology and what we call surveillance, disease surveillance, are very classical uh, surveillance systems. So, you know, I work out of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. We are home to the BC Public Health Laboratory, and every day they are running thousands of tests. And so one of the data streams that we can look at for surveillance is something like positive test results. Today, how many positive tests for influenza A virus did we see? And then we can use a little bit of statistical analysis to say, okay, is that more or less than I would expect for this particular day of the year? And if you see more cases of a particular disease than you would expect, you've potentially got a signal that there's an outbreak on your hands. So we've got surveillance systems like this, lab test positives. Um, in a place like British Columbia, we're also able to access um, medical services plan billing. So if somebody goes to the doctor, um, the doctor uh, gives them an examination and determines that they've got something like 
influenza-like illness, for example, some sort of respiratory virus, if that doctor wants to get paid for their visit for seeing you, they have to go to the medical services plan and enter in saying, I saw this patient and I diagnosed them with this general category of condition. And so we can look at that data on a daily basis as well. And you can say, oh, more cases of influenza-like illness showing up in doctor's office than we would expect normally. Maybe this means it's the start of flu season. So that's all well and good. Those are really interesting and useful surveillance systems. But the problem is those only exist in places that have really good, robust public health infrastructure, places like British Columbia, places like Canada, places like the United States and Western Europe. The places where interesting disease outbreaks are happening, your Ebola outbreaks, your Zika outbreaks, your yellow fever outbreaks, those are places where public health infrastructure um, may not be as good or it may not exist, period. There might not be a laboratory like we have here in BC. There might not be any sort of national um, physician billing system that allows us to see what doctors are seeing their patients for. So we have to get creative. And this is where this emerging technology of digital epidemiology is coming into play. Because the thing is, you know, no matter where you are in the world, there might not be amazing public health infrastructure, but you can bet that there's going to be pretty decent digital or mobile phone infrastructure. It's very hard to get to an unconnected part of the world. And almost everywhere you go, there are going to be digital footprints left by a population. There are going to be online newspapers from the region talking about what's happening on a daily basis in a particular part of the world. There's going to be people tweeting or posting to other social media sites about what's happening in their day. There's going to be people sending mobile phone text messages back and forth to each other. There's going to be people that are opening up a search engine and typing in their symptoms for something that they are feeling sick with. So digital epidemiology is all about understanding what sorts of digital footprints that we as individuals and societies leave behind in our daily lives that can provide useful and actionable epidemiological information. So there have been some great examples. Um, one of the earliest examples in the field, it ended up not working out so well eventually, but uh, early proof of concept worked really beautifully in that Google could look for people searching for symptoms that were characteristic of the flu, and they could use the volume of search queries as a tool to say, hey, we're seeing a lot more search queries I think this might mark the beginning of flu season. And for the first few years that they tried this out, it was a project called uh, Google Flu Trends. They were seeing that, yeah, actually, search volume queries were a really good proxy um, for the start of flu season. Um, the algorithm ended up getting confounded by other search terms eventually, but it was a really nice first proof of concept. And so now you're starting to see research groups devoted to saying, okay, what else can we do with this sort of data? How can we turn it into useful predictions around um, public health events and maybe use it as a sort of early 
early warning system, an early alert system, almost like the smoke detector for these tiny little outbreak fires that normally um, entities like National Public Health Labs, WHO, only notice once that fire gets really big. How can we find it when it's just a tiny little flame and just the faintest whiff of smoke? Well, that starts to get me thinking that, you know, you, you're getting all of that data. And, but there are a lot of people that are really in the medical community gathering all kinds of data, right, from nurses to doctors to scientists. I mean, is all of that data coming to a central place or is it still broken or fragmented? It's very much fragmented. Um, there's a lot of silos, and it's there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, some of those are systemic reasons. If you look in the United States, for example, you've got different uh, healthcare providers, different systems and networks, and they all keep their data internally, and it's not being shared back and forth. In a place like Canada, where I'm working, each province manages their health differently. Um, and within a given province, you might have city level health authorities, you might have regional health authorities, systems even within a, a center don't talk to each other. I work out of the BC Center for Disease Control, and it can be a little challenging sometimes to link data for one pathogen to data to another pathogen, because oftentimes diseases will co-occur. We know things like, um, you know, having HIV puts you at a higher risk for or, uh, having active TB disease. So it'd be great if we could just link the data from the HIV bin to the data in the TB bin and start to answer some questions. Um, but the data, even within a single center, is often fragmented, and there's a lot of steps that need to be um, taken in order to link that data and start to draw inferences about it. So one of the things that I've, I've found talking to other people that are working in the genome sequencing community, that are working in this sort of uh, the digital frontiers of health, is that organizations tend to be really risk averse around linking data and using data for discovery and for predictive analytics. But patients, the people that we exist to serve, really want their data to be linked and used to better their health. There's a lot of human genome sequencing that's happening to understand diseases from cancer to very rare childhood metabolic diseases. And those are areas where the more data that's shared, the better. But scientists and the organizations that we work for become kind of terrified around um, the ethical and privacy implications of sharing human human genomic data, but the patients that are part of these studies, the patients that have these rare diseases and these difficult to treat cancers, they're the ones that are really driving the community towards more open sharing of data and breaking down those silos and saying, hey, if you've got this data about us, we don't want it in a silo. We want it to be used for discovery. And we know that it needs to be pooled and considered along with hundreds or thousands of other samples in order to really make those discoveries that are going to lead to new therapies and that are potentially going to save my life or the lives of people that are experiencing this disease after me. So we're at a really interesting time where, yes, the data is fragmented, um, but we're getting to the point where there's a driver that is going to, uh, I think, bring about transformative change in the industry. And excitingly, that driver is coming from the patient 
communities. It's not coming from institutional top-down mandates saying you must share data. It's coming from our end users. It's coming from the people that we're doing this for. So it sounds like the patients are okay saying, you know, it's fine with me. Go ahead and crowdsource my health plan here. Get all the data, talk to whoever you want, find the best path for me. Yeah, and sometimes it's that individual level thing. And sometimes it's just saying, hey, you know, I know that I've got an unusual tumor, for example. And I know that if you guys want to understand why this tumor is happening, it's not enough just to study mine, but you need to study hundreds of others like it. So I'm okay with the data about my tumor and my condition being thrown into this pool so that instead of studying one sample, you now have a thousand samples to study. And I know that although that might not directly benefit me, in the short term or even the long term, it's going to benefit the community and it's going to benefit future patients. In the media, we've heard a lot about superbugs and the ineffectiveness of current antibiotics. Is that a legitimate concern? And how has it happened? And what advice do you give for people to protect themselves in that situation? People often ask me, as somebody that works in infectious diseases and public health, like, what's the scariest pathogen that's out there? And, uh, you know, they're expecting an answer like Ebola or like rabies. But I always tell them the scariest pathogen isn't a pathogen itself. It's a phenomenon, and it's the phenomenon of antibiotic resistance. So we started using antibiotics um, in the 1940s, and what we've seen is just in the space of uh, half a century, three quarters of a century, antibiotic resistance has rippled through the bacterial population. Um, it was selected for really quickly. You know, thinking back to Charles Darwin, survival of the fittest, all of that good stuff. Um, it was very, very easy for um, antibiotic resistance, which is something that's existed for as long as bacteria have existed. We can go back and we can find bacteria that have been uh, completely unexposed to humankind. They've been living at the bottom of a lake buried beneath an Antarctic ice cap for you know tens of thousands of years. Even those bacteria carry antibiotic resistance elements. And so what happens when you start um, applying antibiotics to a population of bacteria, some of whom have antibiotic resistance elements um, written into their DNA, those are selected for it. They become the dominant members of the population. And so very quickly, they take over and an antibiotic becomes useless. So we're at a really important and critical time right now where if we don't change how we think about antibiotics in a number of ways, if we don't think about how we change our relationship with prescribing antibiotics to humans, if we don't change how we think about using antibiotics in um, agriculture, in farming, if we don't think about how we incentivize the development of new antibiotics for pharmaceutical companies, because right now it's one of those uh, drugs that there's no incentive, there's no financial incentive for a drug company to spend a lot of R&D money on developing new antibiotics. It's only the goodness of their hearts that they're, they're going to um, be able to benefit from. So we need to really rethink what we're doing. Um, and if we don't, we're facing a future where 
10 years from now, 20 years from now, you might think seriously about going into a hospital for an elective operation because the risk of acquiring an antibiotic infection from that surgery is greater than whatever you'd be living with. You might say like, oh, I need my knee replaced. I really can't walk on it anymore. But if I go into a hospital for a knee replacement surgery, antibiotic-resistant superbugs are such a problem, I run a huge risk of getting one of these catastrophic infections that can't be treated and I might die. So, hey, you know what? I'm just going to live with this bum knee for the rest of my life. That's a very, very real possibility. And so I think what individuals can do is... A couple fold. Um, it starts at home. It starts with responsible antibiotic use. It starts with recognizing that something like a cold, something that's caused by a virus, isn't treatable with an antibiotic. So don't be demanding antibiotics from your care provider. Um, if they say, I'm not going to give you antibiotics because it's clear you have a virus, don't ask for them. They, they know what they're doing. Take your courses of antibiotics responsibly. Um, if it says, Take it for five to seven days. Take it for five to seven days. Don't just take a few pills and stop when you feel better. So finish your entire course. Then at a kind of larger level, we as professions need to think about our use of antibiotics. Farmers need to think about, um, do I really want to contribute to antibiotic resistance by giving my chickens antibiotics just to make them bigger in their first few months of life? Um, do we as doctors or do we as dentists want to prescribe so many antibiotics. Do we always need to be doing these? Maybe we don't need to be doing prophylactic antibiotic courses before a tooth extraction, for example. And then we as a society can put pressure on our elected officials um, to say, hey, this is uh, an area that we think is really important and we want to see you investing in solutions as a government. And you can get really crazy and get right up to the pharmaceutical uh, company level and you know, vote with your in your stock options and say, oh, I don't want to invest in a company that doesn't believe in producing new antibiotics. I don't want to be investing in a company that's only pumping all their research and development money into really expensive drugs that are going to cost a patient $300,000 a year and are going to make a pile of money for the company. I want to invest in companies. I want to work with companies that are also devoting a portion of their R&D envelope to really pressing problems like antibiotic resistance. So there's a lot of things that we can do at a lot of levels, but I think it just requires all of us to start caring about this and recognizing that it is a really, really huge threat facing us as a society. So what would you say the future role of the scientists, microbiologists, epidemiologists, whatever it is, what would you say that future role is and what skills will those future scientists need that current scientists don't really have now? What we're seeing is a real move towards interdisciplinarity in science. And this is even apparent if you look at journal articles that were written 25 years ago, 50 years ago. It used to be you'd look through the table of contents in Nature or Science or one of these big prestigious journals, and you'd see a paper with one author, two authors, three authors. And now it's not unusual to see 
the hundreds of authors on a paper. Um, I had one that came out yesterday. It was about six or seven authors. I had one come out the week before. There were over a hundred authors on that paper. So within um, an individual scientific investigation, you've got loads of different people playing loads of different roles. You maybe have your microbiologist who specializes in understanding a particular pathogen. You've got your data scientist who's working with some of the big data sets that uh, are incorporated into an analysis. You've got your epidemiologist who understands patterns of spread in the population. You've got a clinician on the team that understands what your findings are going to mean for treating patients or responding to an outbreak. You've got these big teams. So I think what you're going to start seeing in the coming years is more people trying to um, kind of diversify their own experience so that they're not just playing one role on a team, but can be playing many. Yeah, I look back at my training and it was sort of as a cell biologist, microbiologist as an undergraduate. Uh, as a graduate student, I worked on some bioinformatics methods development. As a postdoctoral fellow, I worked on um, some information visualization work and you know, techniques drawn from computer science. And then um, as somebody working in the public health environment, I sort of pulled all those together and added those epidemiology and public health pieces on. So I have a fairly diverse set of skills that I bring to the table, whether it's understanding a pathogen itself, understanding how it moves through the population, being able to do the computational analysis to uncover this, realizing what that means for public health interventions, thinking about how we communicate that information out and turn it into an actionable intervention. Um, I think I kind of represent that new frontier of scientists that are bringing a really diverse skill set to the table. So I think training for future scientists is really going to emphasize that um, interdisciplinarity and seeing how techniques and approaches from one part of science or one part of art or one part of economics or one part of psychology can be pulled in to influence other parts. It's really about um, trying to, it's really about being curious about uh, what's happening in other domains and taking the best of the most leading edge in everything you can think of and pulling it together to solve your particular problem. Now that's this has been extremely fascinating to me. And I got one really important question here. Knowing what you know, how do you climb onto a crowded airplane, take public transportation, use a public restroom? <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. And you know what? I realized over the years that people working in microbiology, people working in public health sort of fall into two camps. There are the people that are all really, truly germaphobes and are sort of paralyzed with fear. They're constantly purelling their hands, never touching their faces. Um, you've got a scarf wrapped around their nose and mouth in winter as sort of a preventative shield. Um, but the other half of us are the ones that just don't care. I mean, I've studied the human immune system. I took immunology courses as an undergrad and my postgrad work, although it was using um, kind of developing InfoVis methods, uh, it was InfoVis methods for interrogating the human immune system and displaying really high dimensional data on immune networks. And I, after three years of advanced immunology, working at the leading edge of the field, there were so many parts to the immune system that I still, after three years as a 
postdoc couldn't keep them all straight. So to me, I'm just like, if there's enough immune system in my body that I can't memorize slash understand it, I think there's enough immune system in my body to deal with all of the gross stuff that's out there. That being said, wash your hands regularly. Don't touch your face, cough into your elbow. And uh, whenever you're around anybody that looks sick, wash your hands a little bit extra and try and stay out of the line of sneeze fire. That's all great advice. That's stuff that I do on a regular basis. So I feel good about, about my future in preventing my own um, disease contamination or spreading it. So uh, one final thought is I think it's time for a sequel of Outbreak. Say Dustin Hoffman calls you. Are you game? Are you in? Will you lead the next sequel of Outbreak? I am totally in on the one condition that I do get to chase that monkey with the butterfly net. I really want to do that. Oh, yeah, I think that would be fun to see. Um, I so um, I think <laughs> let's make that the next way to inspire the next generation of scientists. We'll, we'll come up with Outbreak 2. We'll pitch it and starring Jennifer Gardy as uh, our lead scientist on the case. <laughs> I guess the final question then would be what disease would you be chasing? chasing? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, you know, I... And I think a lot of people in public health maybe share this sentiment. We're always kind of secretly waiting for a zombie apocalypse just because we really get to shine. We go a little underappreciated most of the time when we're, you know, solving foodborne outbreaks or, you know, uh, quashing a TB outbreak somewhere. It's not quite as exciting um, as the zombie apocalypse. So, yeah, outbreak two, uh, zombie fever, I think would be it. Zombie fever from an alien ship, maybe. Yes, I love it. We could do a little like alien versus predator versus Dustin Hoffman in Outbreak. It would be great. Well, that, I, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. Um, I definitely buy my ticket to that. <laughs> um, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. It's been very insightful oh, it's been my and pleasure. very informational. Thank you. I've definitely learned a lot. Excellent. So um, best of luck to you. and. I'm going to ask one more question. Just popped into my head. Yeah, go for it. What will you do next? I am most interested in bringing the type of work that I do, um, this sort of genome sequencing, genomic epidemiology, we call it, really bringing it together with digital epidemiology to build kind of a global early alert system um, coupled to a response system. So I'm part of a, a big international consortium, the Arctic Network, uh, where we're really kind of working on this. And how can we get things like portable sequencers into the field, but how can we pick up those signals of where we need to be with digital epi techniques. Um, we're really trying to push this new paradigm for outbreak response. So that's what's next for me. Well, I can't wait to see what you do. And we wish you the best in pursuing that. So thanks again and best of luck. Thank you. And wash your hands, everybody. You know, one of the things that I took away from my conversation with Dr. Gardy was how she recognized the need and opportunity to combine her science, knowledge, and expertise with her ability to communicate. Imagine what it would be like if we didn't have any intelligent communicators like Dr. Gardy to effectively share valuable and critical information with the masses. You know, this makes me also think about what other professions and industries out there could benefit from an expert in the field that is also an expert communicator. You know, another interesting thing that she brought up 
was how the field has changed over the last couple of decades. And really what drives her work is less time in the lab and more time looking at and analyzing the data. Of course, this rapid evolution of how scientists like Dr. Gardy are currently working isn't unique. The rapid change has happened across almost all fields in all industries. And if anything, the rate of change has only increased. And that makes it all that more important to equip our future scientists, teachers, doctors, whoever it might be, with the skills they need to creatively convert future challenges into opportunities. And finally, our health is one of the most valuable things we own. And we have incredible people and scientists like Dr. Gardy to thank for keeping a close eye on anything that may threaten it. But while she is working hard to improve global health, take a look around. Imagine all the germs and disease that you can't see and ask yourself, what will I do? Thanks again to Dr. Jennifer Gardy for joining us today. Be sure to follow her on Twitter. Stay up to date on all the work she's doing with the Gates Foundation. You can find her at Jennifer Gardy. And be sure to check out her book. It's great for young readers. It's called It's Catching, the Infectious World of Germs and Microbes. And you can find that on Amazon. I'm Quinn Henderson, and you've been listening to FutureX, powered by Future Design School. Stay tuned for another batch of episodes that will connect you with experts and insights into the future.